Deruan Saranai, welcome to our Navangpoya Dhamma session. Heartfelt good wishes to all of you on this Oposatha day. The title for today's Dhamma session is Spiritual Progress and Attainment, and it's based on the Buddha's teaching to Sunakata, the Dichavin, in the Sunakata Sutta, so Majjhimanikaya Discourse number 105. This teaching from the Buddha is particularly useful for those who have made spiritual progress so far and those who have attained to the noble path. So what we'll cover today is we'll go through our tips and reminders as usual and we'll have an overview of the sutta before we launch in and this will look at the architecture and the usual things. We'll also look at who is Sunakata because I think the context for who is receiving the teaching is really important. And also because Sunakata is quite an interesting character. We see him in other suttas and uh, different time frames for how he uh, practiced the Dhamma. And we'll also then contemplate the Buddha's similes, how we should practice and train as we progress and also attain on the noble path. So there is a number of similes that are very useful to actually look at. So our tips and reminders, as usual, keep an open mind. Uh, this is different Dhamma that we're listening to today from the Buddha, but some of it will also be familiar and will also fit in with what we've been practicing and studying together. Also be okay with not understanding everything. As we know, it can be sometimes be frustrating, but we're learning together, we're walking together. So just get the most out of it today. We're all sacred. So remember that, that we're all seeking to understand and penetrate the meaning and how to practice and apply ourselves to the meditation. So we're not doing any long meditations today. All we'll do is we'll contemplate a few moments um, once we go through each simile. So there's about eight similes today. And while we're doing that, you can think of your own examples if it helps, but definitely offline after we go through this session, it's very useful to uh, spend some time going through the similes and, and bringing up your own examples. And of course, have very good wishes for everyone today, everyone that's joining, everyone that's helped us to be here, and everyone in the world. So let's start with the overview. So Sunakata is the son of the Lichavis. He's also a prince. And he comes and asks the Buddha whether a number of monks who declared enlightenment, whether they had rightly declared themselves. So had they really attained Nibbana or had they overestimated themselves? And the Buddha answers that, you know, half have and half haven't or something to that extent. And he goes on to give a wonderful teaching using several similes, as I've mentioned. And he demonstrates what true spiritual progress and attainment is really like for those who are genuinely intent on complete liberation. And he ends the teaching by giving this really important advice about how we should train, how we should practice. And he uses the example also of an arahant. So we get the distinction between those who are trainees or sekas and those who are arahants who have removed all the taints. So it can be very interesting teaching. 
Now, the architecture of the sutta, it opens with this opening dialogue between Sunakatha about these bhikkhus who've declared final knowledge or Nibbana. And Sunakatha invites Buddha to teach after asking his question and getting a response. And then the next part of the sutta is really the Buddha teaching about gradual spiritual progress using these similes. And he emphasizes that a person becomes detached from something in order to then find satisfaction in something else as one makes progress towards Nibbana. And then the third section of the sutta is really talking about this one really big simile about someone who's wounded by a poison arrow and how they have that arrow pulled out by a surgeon. And the Buddha gives advice on how to train and practice using this particular sutta and giving the distinction between those who have actually attained path and fruit and also how it is referenced against, against someone who has removed all the taints and has attained final Nibbana. And then it closes with Buddha giving two further similes emphasizing the importance of practicing with sense restraint. And I think that is very, very important for us to, to connect with other things that we've been practicing, such as metta and things like that. And so it's practicing a restraint around the six uh, bases of contact. So that's the architecture of the sutta. Now, who is Sun Sunakatha? So as we said, Sunakatha was this Lichavi prince of Vesali. And this teaching by Buddha to Sunakatha, in this particular Sunakatha Sutta, it was given prior to him ordaining into the Sangha. So this particular teaching must have contributed to inspire him to, to the Buddha's teachings and also to take ordination. Now, he joined the order of the Sangha for a little while, and he was even the personal attendant of the Buddha for a little while as well. But he became dissatisfied and disrobed. And there's another Sutta called the Pathika Sutta, and this is in the longer discourses, and it's discourse number 24 of Diganikaya. And that's where we find out that Sunakatha was actually quite unhappy with the Buddha for two main reasons. The first one was he was disappointed that the Buddha didn't perform any miracles for him, like demonstrating his supernormal abilities. And the second thing was he was unhappy that the Buddha didn't explain to him the beginning of things, such as the origin of the world. And when you read the Mahasihananda Sutta or Mahasihanada Sutta, Majjhimanikai Discourse number 12, this is after Sunakatha has left the, the order of the Sangha and he makes this statement before an assembly in Vesali and he says, the recluse Gautama does not have any superhuman states, any distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones, the recluse Gautama teaches a Dhamma merely hammered out by reasoning, following his own line of inquiry as it occurs to him. And when he teaches the Dhamma to anyone, it leads him when he practices it to the complete destruction of suffering. So the first thing that we see here is that Sunakatha thought more highly about psychic powers and superhuman states than the path that was taught by the Buddha. But he also in trying to insult the Buddha, he actually complimented him because he said that what he teaches leads to the complete destruction of, of the whole mass of suffering. So Venerable Sariputta, when he was on arms round, he heard what uh, Sunakatha had said and he later told the Buddha, like after he came back from arms round, he came and told the Buddha. And the Buddha responded by saying, Sariputta, this misguided man, Sunakatha, is angry and his words are spoken out of anger 
thinking to discredit the Tathagata, he actually praises him. For it is praise of the Tathagata to say of him, when he teaches the Dhamma to anyone, it leads him when he practices it to the complete destruction of suffering. And then in that particular sutta, Buddha goes on to highlight how Sunakatha could never infer or measure the Buddha according to the Dhamma for all these different qualities, the Buddha's conduct, knowledges, uh, accomplishments, supernormal powers, and, and the Buddha's mind. And it's literally a rebuttal of Sunakatha's criticism of him. Now, what happened to Sunakatha is that he became a follower of many, many different teachers whose spiritual insight and, and development was quite insignificant compared to the Buddha. And what we see, and it's I think it's actually in this Pathika Sutta, the Buddha tries to help him and Sunakatha refuses to see the truth and he keeps seeking out more teachers and particularly the ones with ascetic practices and those that he perceived as having supernormal abilities. So one of the teachers was this teacher called Horakakathya and he was a naked dog duty ascetic who, as it as the name kind of implies, he, he behaved similar to a dog and was very ascetic in that way. And he was later reborn as an asura. And, and yet Sunakatha still wouldn't believe the Buddha. And then there was Kalara Matuka. And this was again a naked ascetic. And he had seven vows. And Buddha was saying, this, this person will end up breaking all of them, which he did. And yet Sunakatha still didn't come towards the Buddha again. And then the last one was Patikaputta. And he was again a naked ascetic to, who claimed to have great spiritual powers. And in the sutta, it reveals that he lied. So Sunakatha, if you really look at it, he proved to be very difficult to instruct. So he was Duvacha. And because of his anger and resentment towards the Buddha, and you could see that he, he did that insult in public, he derogated the Buddha in public in Vesali, he was tenaciously still holding on to wrong views. And so we can see, clearly see that he was obstructed from the Noble Eightfold Path. And in many, many ways, knowing the story of this little bit about Sunakatha, you feel like it's a bit of a tragic story for him. So we can begin looking at the Sunakatha Sutta, and it starts with, thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Vesali in the great wood in the hall with the peaked roof. Now on that occasion, a number of bhikkhus had declared final knowledge in the presence of the Blessed One thus. We understand, birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. Sunakata, son of the Lichavis, heard, and he heard exactly what was just said. And then Sunakata went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and said to the Blessed One, I have heard, Venerable Sir, that a number of bhikkhus have declared final knowledge in the presence of the Blessed One. Did they do so rightly, or are there some bhikkhus here who declare final knowledge because they overestimate themselves? So Sunakata is really asking the Buddha if all the, the monks had really attained Nibbana or if they were overestimating. And so the Buddha answers, when those bhikkhus Sunakata declared final knowledge in my presence, there were some bhikkhus who declared final knowledge rightly. And there were some who declared final knowledge because they overestimated themselves. And then he goes on to say, therein, when bhikkhus declare final, final knowledge rightly, their declaration is true. 
But when bhikkhus declare, declare final knowledge because they overestimate themselves, the Tathagata thinks, I should teach them the Dhamma. Thus, it is in this case, Sunakata, that the Tathagata thinks, I should teach them the Dhamma. But some misguided men here formulate a question, come to the Tathagata and ask it. In that case, Sunakata, though the Tathagata has thought, I should teach them the Dhamma, he changes his mind. So out of compassion, the Buddha thinks, oh, he'll teach the Dhamma to those who have overestimated and maybe then they'll be able to realize Nibbana. But then he comes to find that they just ask questions and these questions may not be around attainment or realizing the truth. They're just questions maybe for the sake of asking questions or questions that are completely foolish or something of that nature. So Sunakata says, this is the time, blessed one. This is the time, sublime one. For the Blessed One to teach the Dhamma, having heard it from the Blessed One, the bhikkhus will, rem will remember it. And then the Buddha says, then listen, Sunakata, and attend closely to what I shall say. And then Sunakata replies, yes, Venerable Sir, in, re in response. And then the Blessed One says this. There are, Sunakata, these five chords of sensual pleasure. What are the five? Forms cognizable by the eye that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. Sounds cognizable by the ear, odors cognizable by the nose, <coughs> flavors cognizable by the tongue, tangibles cognizable by the body that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. These are the five chords of sensual pleasure so uh, the phrase that keeps being repeated about these five chords of sensual pleasure in Pali that's karmaguna is wished for desired agreeable and likable connected with desire and provocative of lust so in Pali this is itta kanta manapa piyarupa karma upasamahita rajaniya so what the Buddha is really giving us here is really the problem statement so the problem arises through the physical nutriment, coupling kara hara. So when eye contacts the form, ear contacts the sound, nose contact contacts odors, tongue contacts flavors, body contacts tangible things. And we end up kicking off the process of wishing for, desiring, liking, finding it agreeable, escalating to sensual desire and leading to lust or excitement for it. And when we keep running this process, Knowingly and mostly unknowingly, we become very addicted to it. And so this is like the law of attract. And we need to keep sustaining ourselves on sensual pleasures because of that addiction. We want to experience happiness in that way. So these are things that we know and we don't see the danger in sensual pleasures. So the Buddha then goes on to say, it is possible, Sunakata, that some person here may be intent on worldly material things. When a person is intent on worldly material things, only talk concerning that interests him. And his thinking and pondering are in line with that. And he associates with that kind of person and he finds satisfaction in it. But when talk about the imperturbable is going on, he will not listen to it or give it ear or exert his mind to understand it. He does not associate with that kind of person and he does not find satisfaction in that. So a person who only knows how to sustain themselves on worldly material things, then sensual pleasures are the only things that they're interested in talking about. 
and their thoughts would be consumed with with things like that as well. So the mind becomes imbued. So worldly material things refers to everything that we commonly indulge in in society. So material things we buy, own, wish for, the things we watch on TV, the cinema, the news media, social media, books, sites, nature, travel, and so on. Also, the music we listen to, concerts we attend, the various sounds that we like. So it could be a certain person's voice, the sound of certain birds, urban sounds, elevator music, radio channels, podcasts, animal sounds, anything like that. And then it's food and drink we're enticed by. So all the different things that we consume and long for. And then the fragrances that we keep around our home from aromatherapy to fresh flowers to cut grass, maybe the smell of coffee, the smell of our favorite foods, different soaps and scents that we use, the hand wash, the shampoo, the cologne, the perfume, all those things. And then it comes to the textures of our clothing, uh, the fabric that we like to sit on, the feel of our bed linen, all those different sensations that come with touch. So a person caught up in worldly things isn't interested in talking about anenja, imperturbable, only about worldly things. So in this particular sutta, as opposed to when we talk about anenja sapaya sutta, which is the next Majjhima discourse 106, here it's actually split out. So anenja, we usually think fourth jhana and then the four formless attainments, which is you know the, the commonly referred to definition for anenja. But in this discourse, it separates out the base of nothingness and also it separates out the base of neither perception or non-perception. So for this particular instance right here, the Buddha is only talking about fourth jhana and the base of infinite space and the base of infinite consciousness. So just bear that in mind. So when Buddha says all these things, what he's really saying is someone who is uh, bound, uh, no longer bound by the sensual realm, like worldly material things, then they're more interested in hearing about the fourth jhana where there's equanimity towards sensual pleasures. And even in the first jhana, a person is free of sensual perception. So therefore, if you're out of, of sensual pleasures and if you're out of even form, then and you go to the formless attainments, that's what you're interested in. So space is infinite and you're no longer even bound by form even at that point. So we now come to the first simile given by the Buddha. So the Buddha says, suppose Sunakata, a man had left his own village or town a long time ago, and he were to see another man who had only recently left that village or town. He would ask that man whether the people of that village or town were safe, prosperous, and healthy. And that man would tell him whether the people of that village or town were safe, prosperous, and healthy. What do you think, Sunakata? Would that first man listen to him? Give him ear and exert his mind to understand. Yes, Venerable Sir. So too, Sunakata, it is possible that some person here may be intent on worldly material things. When a person is intent on worldly material things, only talk concerning that interests him. And his thinking and pondering are in line with that. And he associates with that kind of person and he finds satisfaction in it. But when talk about the imper imperturbable is going on, he will not listen or give it ear or exert his mind to understand it. He does not associate with that kind of person and he does not find satisfaction in it. He should be understood as a person who is intent on worldly material things. 
So this simile of seeing a person from your town and asking questions, all that sort of thing, is really about the person who is intent on worldly material things. So in Pali, this is Purusa Pugalo Loka Amisad Adimutto. So if you think about it, if we live abroad or if we live away from where we were born or brought up and we meet someone who has just come from there, if we were intent on worldly material things, then we would be delighted. There would be Abhinandati to meet the person and to find out the latest news and developments, gather data, gather information about people and the place and indulge and talk about it. So be Abhinandati and then maybe even hold on to, to it. So Ajusayatititi. So this is very similar to being intimate in the in the village. So Game Santavajato Hoti. So if you remember from Haladikani Sutta, Venerable Mahakachana was saying, if you're intimate in the village, then you want to live in association with people in the village. You rejoice with them, you sorrow with them, and you're happy when they're happy, and you're sad when they're sad, and you get really involved in everyone's affairs and duties. So that's how you're intimate in the village. So this is a very similar thing. And if you remember from Haladikani Sutta, a muni is not intimate with anyone. Game akupang muni santavani. So if we have started to see the downside of meeting up and talking, then of course we would, and our meditation also shows that, then we would not want to associate and find satisfaction in that way. Because what we realize with the insight from our meditation is we know that at the end of that meetup or even during the talk that is happening, it disturbs the mind. Like deep down, it disturbs the mind and it can only result in sadness, dormanasa. So a person still intent on worldly material things, that wouldn't register for them because they would take delight, express and remain holding. So a person who is more inclined towards Anenja would, would, would register it and say, not take delight, not express, not remain holding, because at the end of the day, all that results is, is sadness. And maybe even during the talk, one would recognize that defilements would start to, to come up, maybe competition, maybe conceit, maybe derogation, maybe all these things like envy and so on. So what's really interesting about this one when you when you when you contemplate this simile is it can also apply to receiving telephone calls, emails, staying very connected through various messaging groups and social media. And when the practice really starts to progress, staying in touch with so many people from back home or um, wanting to hear about all these things and what people have done, you know that at the end of the day, it's all about what what people have done, where they went. Um, who they've met up with, what they ate, what they drank, what they bought, and on and on like that. It's all about karma, sensual pleasures. So the same could also be said when you think about this, about school reunions, college reunions, gatherings with, you know, larger groups of relatives, uh, old friends, colleagues, and, and similar events. So what we usually hear is, oh, so-and-so is doing well, and so-and-so not so good. And, and you start to see people envious, jealous, um, wanting to belittle, uh, feeling less, uh, all, all different kinds of things start to come up. And so these interactions, ultimately, they're imbued with worldly material things, so defilement starts to enter. So poverty and greed, ill will, derogation, disparaging, envy, negligence, all of it. 
And when we date together, we breed more defilements. And so this leads to also verbal misconduct. We could start lying, having a harsh speech if, if we start to argue about things, maybe even divisive speech. So and so, we, we like them, but we don't like the other ones. And then a lot of idle chatter, a lot of frivolous talk. So if we really investigate with wisdom, seeing these interactions in the right way and seeing through this particular simile, then we really understand that it ends with sadness. So I think what's useful is just to take a couple of minutes, nothing too long, we're not going to meditate on it, but just a couple of minutes with the Dhamma in, in, in your mind because it's fair enough to talk about it, but just take a few and think about this simile of, of meeting someone from your town or your village and asking questions and how that is really about a person who worldly thing. Okay, we can now move on to the next uh, simile. Just bear with me one second. Just want to double check that uh, I can be heard. I'll keep going. So the next simile is this simile of the yellow leaf. Okay, good. Glad you can hear. So this simile of the yellow leaf, the Buddha says, it is possible, Sunakata, that some person here may be intent on the imperturbable. When a person is intent on the imperturbable, only talk concerning that interests him. And his thinking and pondering are in line with that and he associates with that kind of person, and he finds satisfaction in that. 
But when talk about worldly material things is going on, he will not listen to it or give it ear or exert his mind to understand it. He does not associate with that kind of person and he does not find satisfaction in it or in that. So here the Buddha is talking about a person intent on the imperturbable. So in Pali, this is Purusa Pugalo Anenja Adimuttoasa. So in this dis discourse, uh, as we've highlighted before, this is about both jhana, the base of infinite space, and the base of infinite consciousness. So this is the anenja that Buddha is referring to here. Now, the person is no longer interested in worldly material things. They've seen through it. They've abandoned it. So they've made spiritual progress. So they won't want to listen to people who are talking about worldly matters. They don't find any satisfaction or joy in it. Instead, the person wants to talk about things concerned with this imperturbable anenja, how to access those states, how to get to fourth jhana, how to stay in the base of infinite space or the base of infinite consciousness. That is what brings them joy, happiness, and satisfaction, not the material things. They've given them up. So if you remember when we recently looked at the anenja sapaya sutta, uh, either together or with some other teacher, that is where... Uh, there's that wonderful gatha, the verse given by the Buddha. Anicca bhikkhuwe karma tucha musa mosadhamma maya kattametang bhikkhuwe balalapanang. So this means in English, bhikkhus, sensual pleasures are impermanent, hollow, false, deceptive. They are illusory, the prattle of fools or the babbler of fools. This is the insight that this person um, really has when they're not interested in central pleasures of the world anymore. It's not worth craving and clinging to what is impermanent, subject to change, and therefore dukkha. So the Buddha goes on to say, central pleasures here and now and central pleasures in lives to come, this is from Anenja Sapaya Sutta, central perceptions here and now and central perceptions in lives to come, both alike are Mara's realm, Mara's domain, Mara's bait, and Mara's hunting ground. So you should remember that. So if we really see that all these sensual pleasures and sensual perceptions are all associated with Mara, then we'll really want to get out of these baits of the world. We don't want to fall for these things and suffer. So we do the meditations that help us to see the physical nutriment, Kapalinkara, Ahara, very clearly. We, um, we don't want to, to go down the unprofitable path. We don't want to go the wrong way due to desire, chanda agati. You know, this is the greed path. So instead, what we want is the first profitable direction, which is the opposite of that, the painful practice with slow realization, dukkha paripada dhanda binya. So we make an effort not to have those akusala thoughts, those unwholesome thoughts. We see the first noble truth of suffering, that there's dukkha. We have this, this predicament. And so what arises is this desire for Nibbana. This is our Chanda Samadhi. So when we do this meditation, we're happy to give up the physical nutriment. So there are many other meditations that we've learned together that help us to see this. So the inside pathway given in Chula Sunyata Sutta also helps us to do that when we look at the elements of earth and uh, basically bulldoze it or zip it up and, and go beyond form. Also, the profitable path meditation when we meditate on dadato punyam pavadati by giving merit grows that one from chunda sutta that gata 
So we know that the body is composed of elements and to see it as it actually is. So again, we're able to go beyond form. And even our recent FOIA session where we looked at Dhatu Vibhanga Sutta and all six elements, it's the same thing as well. So the more we train in higher concentrations, what we find is that wisdom comes to arise. It's really this Panya uh, Ditana that becomes very, very strong. And we get more familiar and skilled at seeing the arising and passing away phenomena, dependent origination. We understand a little bit more and also the Four Noble Truths. So our sadda towards Buddha grows, as does all the other faculties and factors that help us to make progress. So the second simile, the Buddha says, just as a yellow leaf that has fallen from its stalk is incapable of becoming green again, so too, Sunakata, when a person is intent on the imperturbable, he has shed the fetter of worldly material things. He should be understood as a person not bound by the fetter of worldly material things who is intent on the imperturbable. So this second simile, the Buddha is highlighting maturity. The yellow leaf has gone from green to yellow, so it has aged and matured. It can't go back to being this green leaf. And in the same way, when we are no longer falling for the baits of the world, when we have clearly seen the truth about the physical nutriment in our meditations, then we no longer regard it as before. So we're like the yellow leaf that is mature. And another perspective has to do with the truth about aging. Just like the green leaf is subject to aging and turns yellow, when we are born, our bodies are young, but we are also subject to aging. And so we will never be young again. So again, you could look at the simile of the leaf in that way. But you can see that the person has gone beyond worldly material things and is certainly more mature. So let's just take a few moments again, just a few short moments, and just to think about this simile, just to take in the Dhamma to the mind. Because it's good to pause rather than keep talking. So just contemplate for a few moments just the yellow leaf how we are green and we become yellow when we go beyond material things yellow leaf represents the person who is intent on the imperturbable fourth jhana base of infinite space base of infinite consciousness so i'll just go quiet for a, a few moments Okay, we'll move on to the next simile. 
So the next one is about a thick stone split in two, but the Buddha begins with, it is possible, Sunakata, that some person here may be intent on the base of nothingness. When a person is intent on the base of nothingness, only talk concerning that interests him, and his thinking and pondering are in line with that, and he associates with that kind of person, and he finds satisfaction in that. But when talk about the imperturbable, so fourth jhana, base of infinite space and base of infinite consciousness is going on, he will not listen to it or give it ear or exert his mind to understand it. He does not associate with that kind of person and he does not find satisfaction in that. So this first part, uh, the Buddha is saying this person is intent on the base of nothing, nothingness. So purusa pugalo akinchana ayatana adimuttuasa. So they're no longer interested in the imperturbable. So when we attain to the base of infinite consciousness, we cling to the feeling. So the person who is intent on the base of nothingness, when they develop their meditation, they no longer take delight in feeling. They nabinandati, the, the feeling. They nabiwadati, the feeling. And they najosayatati, the feeling. So we've spoken about this before in Chula Sunyata Sutta and also in Datu Vibhanga Sutta. But if you remember from Datu Vibhanga Sutta, feeling arises because of contact. So in the Sutta, it says, if there is contact and friction between two fire sticks, so you remember Buddha gave the simile of the fire sticks, heat would be generated when the two sticks are rubbed together, fire is produced. Now, if you separate the two sticks, then the heat ceases and everything subsides. So in the same way, feeling is dependent on contact. With the cessation of contact comes the cessation of feeling. So when we follow the instructions in the Dato Vibhanga Sutta and we give up all six elements, we're essentially giving up the feeling. We're not wanting to take delight in it, not welcoming, not remaining holding to even the feeling. And so we enter into the base of nothingness. That's one way that, that we enter. And so what happens is what remains is perception. So the same thing can happen if we meditate uh, using Chula Sunyata Sutta and also this sutta called Sunyata Loka Sutta where we contemplate empty of self and empty of what belongs to self. We also mentioned this in Chula Sunyata Sutta in that session. And also if we contemplate if it is impermanent, subject to change and suffering, is it worth taking as me and mine? That uh, meditation pathway also helps us to enter into emptiness or nothingness, base of nothingness. So then the Buddha gives this third simile. He says, just as a thick stone that has split in two cannot be joined together again, so too, Sunakata, when a person is intent on the base of nothingness, his fetter of the imperturbable has been split. He should be understood as a person not bound by the fetter of the imperturbable, who is intent on the base of nothingness. So you can see that these similes are getting increasingly powerful. And we actually do need some time away from even this session to contemplate them. So with this one, the stone that has been split in two that can't be joined back together is like the person who's intent on the base of, of nothingness, on emptiness. They've, they're now split from contact and therefore feeling. So without contact, there is no feeling and one can remain in the base of nothingness with only the perception. So that's what this is really about. So you can see a person has gone beyond worldly material things 
They've now gone beyond the imperturbable. So fourth jhana, base of uh, infinite space, base of infinite consciousness. And now they are in the um, base of nothingness. So take a few moments just to turn your mind around this one. If, if it doesn't come right now, that's okay. Uh, it's very useful to do it afterwards. But I'll go quiet just for a few moments so you can just turn that in your mind. And then we'll move to the next one. So consider this one as the person who is intent on the base of nothingness. That's this simile of a thick stone split in two. All right, let's move on to the next one. I think what's really interesting about these similes is if you follow the sequence of the similes, you recognize that Buddha is showing us what ceases at each part of spiritual progress, each part of going beyond one thing to the next thing to the next thing. So there are suttas that are also uh, listing out these things as well. But in these similes, it's really being able to see what one starts to find satisfaction in when you give up the lesser concentration. And, and so you, you keep uh, developing the mind in that way. And really what we develop when we develop through these formless attainments is to see that they're still constructed, they're still subject to change. And therefore, when we fall from them, even after a very long time, uh, we experience dukkha again. So it's still not Nibbana. So that's the insight that we get from progressing through these higher concentrations. So this particular uh, simile that we're going to go through is very visual, so bear with me. The Buddha then says, it is possible, Sunakata, that some person here may be intent on the base of neither perception nor non-perception. When a person is intent on the base of neither perception nor non-perception, only talk concerning that interests him. And his thinking and pondering are in line with that. And he associates with that kind of person and he finds satisfaction in that. But when talk about the base of nothingness is going on, he will not listen to it or give it ear or exert his mind to understand it. He does not associate with that kind of person and he does not find satisfaction in that. So here the person is now intent on the base of neither perception nor non-perception. So purisa pugala never sanya asanya ayatana adimutto asa. So they're no longer interested in the base of nothingness. So they're starting to see something. So we'll read out the fourth simile. 
and it's a, it's a vivid one. So the person now has eaten some delicious food. So the Buddha says, suppose a person has eaten some delicious food and thrown it up. What do you think, Sunakata? Could that man have any desire to eat that food again? No, venerable sir. Why is that? Because that food is considered repulsive. So too, Sunakata, when a person is intent on the base of neither perception or non-perception, his fetter of the base of nothingness has been rejected. He should be understood as a person not bound by the fetter of the base of nothingness, who is intent on the base of neither perception nor non-perception. Okay, so it's getting more and more interesting. And what we see here is that when we attain to the base of nothingness, what we have is only perception. So what Buddha is showing us with this very vivid simile is to see these perceptions have a sick nature. So the throwing up part of the simile is really talking about the sickness. So when we med meditated on the Anendra Sapaya Sutta, we realized that when we perceive something as pleasing or beauty, subhasanya, and we think we can make it last, nichasanya, and out of the delusion, we take it as pleasurable, sukhasanya. When the pleasure changes, what happens? The result is sadness, dormanasa. So the, the simile of seeing a person who's eating delicious food and throwing it up or vomiting, whichever way you want to look at it, is about seeing perceptions as sick. So throwing up or vomiting re represents the sick nature of perceptions. And when we perceive, we go through mental volition as nutriment, which also has the sick nature. So our volitional formations that we construct out of these sick perceptions, how they go into this mind factory, they also become sick. They have the sick nature. So there's quite deep dhamma in this, but the real thing to see is, is to be able to connect how we meditate and how it relates to this. So we're not taking refuge even in the base of nothingness, that the perception of emptiness is not something that we cling on to, crave on to. So when we investigate this attainment, what we have is really the perception of nothing. So in the Sunyata Dorka Sutta, which I mentioned briefly before, the Buddha explains to Venerable Ananda that it is because it is empty of self and what belongs to self. So in Pali, this is sunyang atenava ataniyana. And this is really saying empty of the world. So because it is empty of self and what belongs to self, that is what it means empty of the world or empty is the world. So in simple terms, what this means is that when we perceive nothing or nothingness, we understand that it's got nothing to do with self, that, that there, is, there is still the perception of not self. And that perception has the sick nature. So when we construct volitional formations, they're still sick. That's basically what it's saying. So when we truly realize that perceptions are sick, we don't want to eat that food again because it's repulsive. And that's why someone would want to go beyond the base of nothingness, away from sickness, away from sick perception. And so in the base of neither perception nor non-perception, a person only has volitional formation. So the sankharas that they constructed at the time of entering into nevasanya sanya. And when you're in that particular concentration, there's no construction of any new volitional formations. There's no new sankharas that would be remaining. 
that, that would be constructed. You'd only have the ones that are still remaining. So in a sense, the person is not eating delicious food and throwing it up in the base of neither perception or non-perception. That is only happening in the base of nothingness. So that is probably very, very deep dhamma there. And we probably need to go away and contemplate that in our own time. It's not something that can be easily connected with just during this session. But just to say it's a very, very valuable simile and well worth spending the time on reflecting on, particularly when we go to these higher concentrations. And if you think about what's happening in the world, a lot of people can go to the base of, of nothingness, like this emptiness, and they they praise it a lot and say a lot of wonderful things about it. But what they don't see is what the Buddha is showing us here in this simile of throwing up after eating delicious food. So although the base of nothingness, we're left with perception that makes us feel very light and vast, and maybe there are all these very, very small little lights in that, in that what you see in your meditation, it's still, it's still sick. And so this is what Buddha wants us to see. That's how we go beyond it to go to neither perception or non-perception. So then the Buddha comes to this simile of the palm stump. And the Buddha says, it is possible, Sunakata, that some person here may be completely intent on Nibbana. When a person is completely intent on Nibbana, only talk concerning that interests him. And his thinking and pondering are in line with that. And he associates with that kind of person. And he finds satisfaction in that. But when talk about the base of neither perception nor non-perception is going on, he will not listen to it or give it ear or exert his mind to understand it. He does not associate with that kind of person. And he does not find satisfaction in it. So this person is rightly intent on Nibbana. So Purusa Pugalo, Sama, Nibbana, Adimutto, Asa. That's in Pali. They are no longer interested in that high concentration of base of neither perception or non-perception. So what happens is when we emerge from the base of neither perception or non-perception, we can have a very strong idea or understanding about marana on, on the death-bound nature that whatever we construct continually breaks and dies. So it could be seeing even physical bodies that we're all bound for death. And so we have this death, death, our nature. But with the direct insight, one sees that even with these higher concentrations, all the way up to the base of neither perception, non-perception, we can stay there for a very long time. And it can be quite pleasant when you think about not being troubled by what's in the world so you know we like the these uh, higher attainments but if one is to be reborn for example in the base of neither perception or non-perception you can live there for 84,000 eons but what buddha says is that after death and if you have no uh, path and fruit then you'll be reborn in the lower realms and so for someone like that then you would think, what's the point? What's the point of living so long in the base of neither perception or non-perception only to fall to the lower realms? And the question arises for someone who's more worldly, what's the, what's the safety in that if they can attain to it, but they don't have any path and fruit? And for the person who has path and fruit, the Buddha would say, yes, you can remain there and then finish it off once that lifespan comes to an end. But also if you read other suttas, the Buddha says to uh, the, the people that have attained path and fruit don't don't stop there uh, you know finish it off 
and particularly to the monastics. So then Buddha gives this fifth simile and he says, just as a palm tree with its top cut off is incapable of growing again, so too, Sunakata, when a person is completely intent on Nibbana, his feta of the base of neither perception or non-perception has been cut off, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, done away with, so that it is no longer subject to future arising. He should be understood as a person not bound by the feta of the base of neither perception nor non-perception, who is completely intent on Nibbana. So, excuse me, with this simile, the Buddha is using uh, uh, one that we've heard before, the simile of the palm tree with its top cut off, and it's not able to grow back again, to show that this is a person who's completely intent on Nibbana. They want to actually give up higher concentrations. Not They no longer fall, want to fall for them or, or that they even fall for them at all. That, so they're completely going towards Nibbana. And they actually see that it's not lasting, deceptive and death-bound. Therefore, abandon it, get rid of it. Don't, don't linger there. Don't, don't think that this is Nibbana. And therefore, if you're not craving for, for this kind of higher concentration, and you see that it's not worth abiding there, not taking refuge in it, then you won't be subject to future arising. And so in this particular occasion, one would reaffirm the determination for truth, such aditana. We're going for something that is not deceptive in nature, and that is Nibbana. That's what offers the supreme safety and happiness. And again, with this simile, uh, outside of this session, it's worthwhile contemplating it again. So with all these higher concentrations, what we see is Buddha's encouragement, really, his encouragement to train in these concentrations so that we're familiar with them and to understand also their arising and ceasing, what causes them to arise, how we enter them, how we stay in them, and also how we fall from, from them, the cessation of them. And in this way, when we do that, we actually penetrate with wisdom and know that they're not Nibbana. And so Buddha does say that formless attainments are more peaceful. So they're more peaceful than form and therefore more peaceful than the sensual realm. So before we move on to this next slide that I've just put up, uh, there's this sutta uh, called the Santatara Sutta, and it's in Itivutaka number 73. So one of the sayings of the Buddha, and it captures it really well. So I'll just read it out. It says, because the formless is more peaceful than the form realm and cessation, so Nibbana, is more peaceful than the formless. Those beings who reach the form realm and those established in the formless, if they do not know cessation, come back to renewal of being. Those who fully understand forms without getting stuck in the formless are released into cessation and leave death far behind. So this is if I just go back to that thing about the palm stump and how we were saying that when you come out of the base of neither perception and non-perception, you really have this strong understanding of marana. This is what it is, that you you don't want to be born again because being born again means death bound again. So this is particularly true for one who has only attained maybe up to once return, uh, that that would be true. And or those who have spiritually progressed but may not have path and fruit, that also applies as well. 
So now we, we it gets even more interesting because we're going to spend some time on this simile about being uh, shot with this poisoned arrow and spend a little time on this. So the Buddha says, it is possible, Sunakata, that some bhikkhu here might think thus, craving has been called an arrow by the recluse. The poisonous humor of ignorance is spread about by desire, lust, and ill will. That arrow of craving has been removed by me. The poisonous humor of ignorance has been expelled. I am one who's completely intent on Nibbana. So with this first paragraph, the Buddha says that it's possible for some bhikkhu to think they've removed the arrow dart of craving, so this tanhasala, and expelled the poisonous humor of ignorance, so the avijja. So we know that craving is the origin of suffering, so this is the second noble truth, and the cause of arising, so cause for us to be reborn into samsara. So in the Paticca Samuppada, with craving as the condition, there is clinging, with clinging, there is existence. With existence comes birth. With birth, there is aging and death and the whole mass of suffering. So that's the paticca samuppada, dependent arising. So if we remove the arrow of craving, then we have the cessation of suffering, which is the third noble truth. And the poison of ignorance is spread by desire. So chanda, lust, raga, and ill will. So that's a bit of explanation about this first paragraph. We're going to come back to it. So then the Buddha says, since he conceives himself thus, though it is contrary to the fact, he might pursue those things that are unsuitable for one completely intent on Nibbana. So what we see here is that although this bhikkhu thinks he has removed craving and expelled ignorance, it's contrary to the fact. So right here, Buddha is saying it's not true. And he believes that he is liberated. So he might pursue the sight of unsuitable forms with the eye, he might pursue unsuitable sounds with the ear, unsuitable odors with the nose, unsuitable flavors with the tongue, unsuitable tangibles with the body, or unsuitable mind objects with the mind. When he pursues the sight of unsuitable forms with the eye and all the way to unsuitable mind objects with the mind, lust invades his mind. With his, must, with his mind invaded by lust, he would incur death or deathly suffering. So believing that he is liberated when he is not. The bhikkhu goes towards unsuitable things. So he is intent on Nibbana, but because he thinks he's uh, liberated, he actually dwells negligently. So he lacks sense restraint. He thinks it's okay to freely roam with the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and the mind. So this is the first part. So then the Buddha further elaborates with the sixth simile. So this is where it gets interesting. Suppose, Sunakata, a man were wounded by an arrow, thickly smeared with poison, and his friends and companions, his kinsmen and relatives, wrought a surgeon. The surgeon would cut around the opening of the wound with a knife. Then he would probe for the arrow with a probe. Then he would pull out the arrow and would expel the poisonous humor, leaving a trace of it behind. Thinking that no trace was left behind, he would say, good man, the arrow has been pulled out from you. The poisonous humor has been expelled with no trace left behind, and it is incapable of harming you. Eat only suitable food. Do not eat unsuitable food, or else the wound may suppurate. From time to time, wash the wound, and from time to time, anoint its opening, so that the pus and blood do not cover the opening of the wound. Do not walk around in the wind and sun, or else the dust and dirt may infect the opening of the wound. 
take care of your wound, good man, and see to it that the wound heals. And then the Buddha goes on and says, the man would think the arrow has been pulled out from me. The poisonous humor has been expelled with no trace left behind, and it is incapable of harming me. So instead of taking the advice, he goes on and he actually eats unsuitable food and the wound separates. He doesn't wash the wound from time to time. So it, um, he also doesn't anoint its opening from time to time. And the pus and blood would cover the opening of the wound and he walks around in the wind and sun and dust and dirt infects the opening of the wound. So he doesn't take care of the wound and he doesn't see to it that the wound heals. Then both because he does what is unsuitable and because a trace was left behind when the foul poisonous humor was expelled, the wound would swell and with its swelling, he would incur death or deadly suffering. Wow. So in this simile, the trace of poison has been left behind during the surgery. Uh, so that's the surgery to remove the arrow and expel the poison. This person in the simile represents a person who has attained stream entry, once return and non-return. So they've been advised by the surgeon to eat suitable food, wash the wound, anoint the opening, take precautions to prevent the wound from getting infected. But thinking, they think that there's no trace of poison left in the wound, so they don't take the advice. They're negligent. They indulge in unsuitable things, thinking that they're safe from danger. So I'll give you an example, a person with attainment, stream entry, once return, non-return. A person may think, I'm safe from rebirth in the lower realms, so I can be a little bit negligent. It doesn't matter. Or one thinks, there's no harm in me doing this. It will be okay for, for me because my practice is strong enough. So examples could be you start to think, oh, I can go to parties and entertain with others and talk and laugh and, and carry on. Or you think, oh, I'll indulge in all kinds of food and talk about it with a lot of enthusiasm. Or you think, oh, I can watch whatever I like on the screen, even if it's violent or sexual or, or frivolous, whatever it could be, or read whatever I want as well, because you think you've attained or you have attained and, and you, you think this. And you could also think, oh, I can travel and make journeys and roam about and take in all these experiences and spend lot of, lots of time in retail and social places. There's no danger. And, and the, the last example could be, I, I can just simply enjoy it to the max. You know, I'm safe from low, lower realms. But with this particular example, and I find this so wonderful, this, this thing, I've been contemplating this all week. It's, it's just so wonderful. The Buddha's using this, this example of, of being poisoned by the arrow and, and being asked to care for the wound after extracting you know, the, the arrow and the poison, there's still a trace. And Buddha is saying, don't do what is unsuitable. There's that and also don't do what is unsuitable because your wound will swell. And with its swelling, you'll incur death or deadly suffering. So what we can take away from that is that even if we have attained to the path, and we have fruit up to non-return, it's still very important for us to protect the wound that has traces of the poison. So the arahant is not included in this because they've gotten rid of the traces of poison and they're not negligent. And we'll come more to the arahant. We'll explain about that a little bit later. So the question to ask are, what is this traces of poison left behind in you know after the surgery? And the answer is, it is the anusaya the underlying tendencies that lie dormant 
So they get activated through feeling. So when we recently examined Datu Vibhanga Sutta, the last boya, we said feeling is dependent on contact. And with sense contact, we activate that sensory process through the sense bases, sense objects, and sense consciousness. And so with that, we, we activate Anusaya. So if you remember, we've said before, the underlying tendency to sensual lust, so karma raga anusaya, lies latent in pleasurable feeling, so sukha vedana. And underlying tendency to aversion, patiga anusaya, lies latent in painful feeling, dukkha vedana. And so the last one, the underlying tendency to ignorance, avija anusaya, that lies latent in neither pleasurable nor painful feeling, sukha Sukha aduka sukama feeling, aduka sukha vedana. So you see, if we are unrestrained, we go and do unsuitable things and we roam about, pollute the mind, pollute through the sense doors, then with that contact comes feeling. And with contact and feeling comes these anusaya. And of course, there's other anusaya as well. There's diti anusaya, the underlying tendency to views, vichikicha anusaya, which is underlying tendency to doubt. Mana anusaya, which is underlying tendency to conceit. And those ones are very much about delusion. And then uh, bhavaraga uh, anusaya, which is the underlying tendency to lust for existence, which comes under, I think, the dosa track. So when we have conditioned or constructed before our previous behavior, and we have underlying tendencies and even old habit tendencies, anything that lies dormant, it gets triggered. So when we're negligent, because the traces are still there, then we're in danger. So think about that for a few moments. Okay, we'll move on. Now, it's also good to understand a little bit about these anusaya, these underlying tendencies, that there is a cause and there is a condition for anusaya. So we always remember what we uh, feel we perceive. So when we continue to perceive suba, beauty, when we continue to perceive uh, pleasure, sukha, when we continue to perceive atta, the self, me and mine, and when we continue to perceive permanency, nicha, then these vipalasa, these mental corruptions, they are the cause for anusaya. So the truth is really that it is asuba, dukkha, anatta, nicha, but when wrong view is active rather than right view, our magapalachitta is not up, it's not active, then if we continue to perceive these things, then it's not good for us. So that's the cause of the anusaya. Now, the condition is when we grasp sign and features, so when we look at something and then we go, we describe it in our minds, we think, oh, there's this person and we think, oh, they're wearing that, they're tall, they're wearing this and that and we're, they've got these kinds of, of features and so on and so forth. So we take that for any object, any really coupling karahara, any physical nutriment. So when we take signs and features, grasp onto them, that is the pachaya, the condition for anusaya. So what is evident in this process is that wrong view is active, right view is not active. So when the two things are there, the underlying 
tendencies are active. So this is despite having attained path and fruit. So for example, we might go shopping and we see a cake at one of the eateries or cafes or cake shops and we perceive it as yummy, tasty, suba is coming. So then we look at it and we keep going around it and, and think, oh, look how beautifully it's decorated. That looks really good. And oh, if I buy it and I eat it, I'm going to have a really good thing out of this. It's going to be so pleasurable. And we've taken that cake as mine now. So uh, we've for forgotten in that moment, Ahara Patikura Sanya. And we've also for forgotten about Vipranama Dukkha, uh, that even the sukha that we experience is fleeting. So one can get caught in these things. So that's not to say we don't go shopping and buy what is needed, but we have to be careful. And it doesn't mean we don't go and, and go to work and all those things. It's just when we're in any environment, we need to be quite careful. So this applies to other experiences in the world. When we're listening to music, watching the TV or news, reading stories, taking in the wrong dhammas, going here or there without a concern for the wound. So we can still be troubled if we have these corrupt or sick perceptions and if we're scanning and taking in signs and features. So the thing about an arahant, for example, is they've destroyed the sick perceptions. So part of the fruit of uprooting the taints and all that is they no longer have sick perceptions. So the cause for anusaya is gone, but they would still dwell vigilantly regarding signs and features. They would still not neglect that. Now, if we understand what the Buddha is highlighting and combine it with our insight from our meditations, we can really see what the Buddha is saying here, to take care of the wound, to allow it to heal, not to eat unsuitable food, to wash the wound, to anoint the wound, to not walk in the sun and, and the wind so it doesn't gather dust and dirt to infect the wound. So that's very much all around sense restraint and how we take things in how we perceive, all of those things. So sense restraint becomes very, very important. And this is even having attained path and fruit. So it's good to know that one is not infallible, that Magapalachitta, when it's not active, can be problematic. So these underlying tendencies for one who has not attained to up to, um, who's attained up to the fruit of non-return, underlying tendencies are still dormant. They can be triggered. When we do unsuitable things, when we dwell negligently, when we, yeah, when we do that, then we activate these anusaya. And what happens is it spreads ignorance again through desire, lust, and ill will. So the Buddha said earlier, Chandaraga Biapada is how ignorance, the traces of, of the, the poison gets, gets spread again. And, and so with that, what you can see is we become dusila, we become misconduct again. So when that happens, there's also conceit, but also we would suffer. So we would suffer what the Buddha calls death or deadly suffering. So the thing about this is when we really contemplate what's just been said by the Buddha and, and our sort of explanation of it, we normally think, ah, oh, I can think of Kalyanamittas who are doing this, or I can think of people on the spiritual path who've attained, or we think they've attained and, and they do this. It's really good to turn that around, to look at our own practice, because it's not nice to just, you know, point to other people. But even in pointing at other people, it means that we connect with it. That means we must have this too. And of course, 
we we do infect our own wound if we investigate we know it is happening because if you can admit we experience dukkha we experience dormanasa sadness we experience the sorka the sorrow we experience the paridheva the lamentation and and we all know we we come to each other and sometimes we have paridheva about circumstances conditions despite practicing well and that's because we're not taking care of the wound we're not allowing it to heal so this is a very very important dhamma so outside of this session really really look at it really look at what the buddha is saying about sense restraint and see how precious it is so the buddha then explains so too sunakatha it is possible that some bhikkhu here might think thus craving has been called an arrow by the recluse the poisonous humor of ignorance is spread about by desire lust and ill will that arrow of craving has been removed by me or removed from me. The poisonous humor of ignorance has been expelled. I am completely intent upon Nibbana. Because he conceives himself thus, though it is contrary to the fact, he might pursue those things that are unsuitable for one completely intent upon Nibbana. And then it repeats what was said above. With his mind invaded by lust, he would incur death or deadly suffering. Now, he goes on to say, for it is death in the discipline of the noble one, Sunakata, when one abandons the training and reverts to the low life. And it is deadly suffering when one commits some defiled offense. So the Buddha in this particular passage um, is saying that though some bhikkhu may think that they've got rid of all the craving and ignorance and they're completely intent on Nibbana, it's through pursuing unsuitable things, their mind becomes invaded with lust and they commit offenses. So some kind of misconduct through body, speech and mind. Their practice gets disturbed and they get challenged. So this could be applied to one of those bhikkhus who had overestimated in declaring Nibbana at the start of the discourse. If they behave negligently, thinking that they're liberated or what have you, then they could suffer death or deadly suffering. They could be completely disturbed in their practice and fall away. And so in the case of a monastic, if they disrobe and go back to ordinary life, then it's considered deadly suffering by the Buddha, like a death, because it's a great loss, a decline. You've fallen away from the noble, the discipline of the noble one. The Buddha continues and says, it is possible, Sunakatta, that some bhikkhu here might think thus, Craving has been called an arrow by the recluse. The poisonous humor of ignorance is spread about by desire, lust, and ill will. That arrow of craving has been removed from me. The poisonous humor of ignorance has been expelled. I am one who's completely intent on Nibbana. So this next bit is different. Being one who is really in really no, being one who really is completely intent on Nibbana. He would not pursue those things that are unsuitable for one completely intent on Nibbana. He would not pursue the sight of unsuitable forms with the eye. He would not pursue unsuitable sounds with the ear. And it goes on all the way uh, through that. And because he does not pursue all those things, lust does not invade his mind. Because his mind is not invaded by lust, he would not incur death or deadly suffering. So with this person, who, is, who really is content upon Nibbana, they are very vigilant about sense restraint. So the Buddha goes on to give a, a simile. 
So I'll just read it out. It's not on the slide. It says, suppose Sunakata, a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison and his friends and companions, his kinsmen and relatives brought a surgeon. So the same simile we were looking at before, but he adjusts it. The surgeon would cut around the opening of the wound with a knife. Then he would probe for the arrow with a, he would, yeah, he would probe for the arrow with the probe. Then he would pull out the arrow and would expel the poisonous humor without leaving a trace of it behind. So earlier before there was a trace left behind, now there is no trace. So knowing that no trace was left behind, he would say, good man, the arrow has been pulled out from you. The poisonous humor has been expelled with no trace left behind, and it is incapable of harming you. Eat only suitable food, do not eat unsuitable food. And so the same advice is being given. So this is the really interesting thing that even though there's no trace of poison left behind, the person is still given the same advice. Now, the Buddha here is referring to the Arahant who has removed craving, expelled ignorance, and there's no traces of underlying tendency, no Anusaya either. So they're really intent on Nibbana. So it's all been completely removed. The Buddha's words in the Kitagiri Sutta, so this is Majjhimanakaya Discourse number 70, they help us to understand this Dhamma. And, and in particular about vigilance as opposed to negligence. So let's read what the Buddha says in this sutta. The Buddha says, Bhikkhus, I do not say of all bhikkhus that they still have work to do with vigilance, nor do I say of all bhikkhus that they have no more work to do with vigilance. And then he says in relation to arahants, I do not say of those bhikkhus who are arahants with taints destroyed, who have lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, re reached the true goal, destroyed the fetters of being, and are completely liberated through final knowledge that they still have work to do with vigilance. Why is that? They have done their work with vigilance. They are no more capable of being negligent. So the reason why we bring this sutta into it is because the Arahant has, has done the work with vigilance, and so they're incapable of negligence. It's, it's the fact that the Buddha is saying. So forsakers, so those still practicing the higher training towards Nibbana, those who have already attained some path and fruit, what the Buddha goes on to say is, I say of such bhikkhus who are in higher training, whose minds have not yet reached the goal and who are still aspiring to the supreme security from bondage, that they still have work to do with vigilance. Why is that? Because when those venerable ones make use of suitable resting places and associate with good friends and nurture their spiritual faculties, they may, by realizing for themselves with direct knowledge here and now, enter upon and abide in that supreme goal of the holy life, for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from home life into homelessness. Seeing this fruit of vigilance for these bhikkhus, I say that they still have work to do with vigilance. So, why Kitagiri Sutta is so important in the context of Sunakata Sutta is that the encouragement is for us, for Sekas, to remember to be vigilant, to only spend time in suitable places, associating with Kalyanamitas, good friends like we, like we do, looking after our spiritual fa faculties, keeping them sharp by meditating together, turning over the Dhamma together, not letting them go blunt. So we keep practicing our sutta meditations. We keep discussing the Dhamma. We keep penetrating the truth. We keep making the determinations for wisdom, truth, relinquishment, for peace. And in doing so, 
because of this vigilance as opposed to negligence, then we realize the fruit of being being vigilant, which is to realize ultimately the supreme goal of, of Nibbana. So the Arahant doesn't need to do that. The Arahant has done the work with vigilance, but the point is that they wouldn't be negligent. They would, for the remainder of their life, they would still be vigilant because that's the way they are. So this is really wonderful, wonderful Dhamma when you when you put it all together. Uh, so we go back to the Sunakatha Sutta and the Buddha says, and he relates it back to some bhikkhu. So this could be a bhikkhu who has rightly de declared Nibbana at the start of the discourse. So one of the ones that didn't over overestimate, they actually realized Nibbana. So the Buddha says, it is possible, Sunakatha, that some bhikkhu here might think thus, Craving has been called an arrow by the recluse. The poisonous humor of ignorance is spread about by desire, lust, and ill will. That arrow of craving has been removed from me. The poisonous humor of ignorance has been expelled. I am one who is completely intent on Nibbana. Being one who really is completely intent on Nibbana, he would not pursue those things that are unsuitable for one completely intent on Nibbana. He would not pursue the sight of unsuitable forms with the eye. Uh, he would not pursue unsuitable sounds with the ear, unsuitable odors with the nose, unsuitable flavors with the tongue, unsuitable tangibles with the body, or unsuitable mind objects with the mind. Because he does not pursue any of those things, lust does not invade his mind. His mind, because his mind is not invaded by lust, he would not incur death or deadly suffering. Suppose Sunakata, a man were wounded by an arrow, thickly smeared with the poison, and so the Buddha is bringing back the simile that we just went through. And in this, there is no trace left behind. Knowing that no trace is left behind, he would say, good man, the arrow has been pulled out from you. And he gives the same advice to eat only suitable food, not eat unsuitable food and so on. And so he says and encourages, take good care of your wound, good man, see to it that the wound heals. So this is all that wonderful stuff that the Buddha has said to us. So then the Buddha gives us the key to unlock the simile, so the rest of it, about having this surgery to remove the poisoned arrow and how to care for the wound. So he says, Sunakata, I've given this simile in order to convey a meaning. This is the meaning here. The wound is the term for the six internal bases. Uh, so this is ajati, ajatikana ayatanang. And then the poisonous humor is the term for ignorance. So poisonous humor is visadosati. So apparently in Sinhala, this is very a very good word, visadosa. And then uh, ignorance, of course, we know as a vija. The arrow is the term for craving. So the sala is tanha. The probe in Pali, this is esani, is the term for mindfulness. So that's the sati. The knife, the satta, is the term for noble wisdom so arya yatang panya and the surgeon here is the term for the tathagata the accomplished one the fully enlightened one so we've looked in detail at the wound the poison and the arrow and we've seen that it is the tathagata who is giving us who's done the surgery for us and giving us the aftercare instructions for our wound to heal and to protect it so the other parts are really about the probe and the knife so the probe, as the Buddha said, is mindfulness. We search to see if there is craving, if there are attachments and therefore defilements, misconduct, and any of those unskillful, unwholesome kinds of things. And the knife is the wisdom, the noble wisdom. 
So this is what we use to cut cut it out, to get rid of it. And that noble wisdom is really our determination for wisdom, the highest wisdom that we have. And that is for the relinquishment of all suffering, really, the cessation of all suffering. And so the Buddha then says that bhikkhu sunakatta is one who practices restraint in the six bases of contact, having understood that acquisition is the root of suffering, being acquisitionless, liberated in the state of the acquisitions, it is not possible that we would that he would direct his body or arouse his mind towards any acquisition. So the Pali word here for acquisition is upadhi, and it's a term that's used often, and it's used in the Dato Vibhanga Sutta as well, so it's applied to the root of suffering. So upadhi is translated as acquisitions, attachments, but really what they are are the collections of things that are the basis for how we cling to rebirth into sansara. So when we still have foolishness and ignorance, when we lack wisdom, when our magapalachitta is not up, then we keep taking and going towards acquisitions, keep taking them up. So the list of acquisitions is given in the Chula Nidesa. There's actually 10 kinds of acquisitions and they can be kind of broadly bunched under craving and, and also views, I suppose, and even sense desire. But we can find it in the Metagu Manava Uchanidesa. So this relates to the questions of Metagu, so or Metagu, uh, whichever way you say it. So uh, this is in the Sutta Nipata. Uh, this venerable asked the Buddha about the origin of suffering. And the reply that the Buddha says is sufferings in their many forms in the world originate based on acquisition, so based on upadi. The ignorant dullard who creates acquisition encounters suffering again and again. Therefore, understanding one should not create acquisition. And so Chula Nidesa actually lists out the 10. So we have acquisition through craving, so Tanha Upadi, acquisition through view, views, Diti Upadi, acquisition through defilements, Kiles Upadi, acquisition through Kamma, Kamma Upadi. Acquisition through misconduct, ducharita upadhi. Acquisition through nutriment, ahara upadhi. Acquisition through anger, patiga upadhi. And then acquisition as the four clung to elements. So chataso upadina datu yo upadhi. So this is clinging to sensual desire, uh, clinging to virtue and observances, clinging to views, uh, clinging to... Mm, what's that? Atavadu upadana. So uh, self-clearing, clinging, clinging. And then the ninth one is acquisition as the six internal sense bases. So cha ajatikani ayatanani upadi. And then the last one is acquisition as the six classes of consciousness. So cha vinana kaya upadi. So basically, when we suffer or experience dukkha, so all the things that are aligned with the 12 terms, uh, that come under the umbrella of the first noble truth of suffering. So birth, old age, sickness, death, pain, sadness, sorrow, lamentation, despair, separation from what is pleasing, united with what is displeasing, and not getting what one wants. It originates based on acquisition. So it originates based on these upadhi. It's caused by upadhi. It's conditioned and constructed by upadhi. And it's produced by upadhi. 
So that that's really something. So as long as we don't abandon or relinquish any of these mental acquisitions, we're bound for rebirth in samsara and the whole mass of suffering. So very powerful thing here. Now, if we have a path and fruit, then it's not so bad. And we are inclined and intent upon Nibbana. So when the Buddha says, having understood that acquisition is the root of suffering, being acquisitionless, liberated in the destruction of the acquisitions, it is not possible that he would direct his body or arouse his mind towards any acquisition. See, it is not possible. The Buddha is emphasizing here that it is impossible for the Arahant to be negligent with regards to any acquisition. So an Arahant would make effort anyway and dwell vigilantly not to grab any sign and features, even while doing what is needed while remaining in the world. So they've cut off and uprooted the causes for any of these things, but yet they would still dwell uh, vigilantly. So it's impossible for them because that's literally what it says. It is not possible. So it's impossible for them to be negligent, to neglect that. So that's a very, very strong statement. So if an arahant doesn't neglect, it does not become negligent, then how can we as seekers allow ourselves to? It just, like, that's how you connect. You think if an arahant, if there was an arahant in the world, if they are not, if it's impossible for them to be negligent, then... We must actually look at that as the example, as, as the role model. So it's a very, very strong statement for us to contemplate and take in to our minds, to really go away and sit with that and to look at that and how it can encourage our own, our, our own practice, our own training. Dwelling vigilantly, like we've highlighted throughout this, this uh, session, and also highlighted from the Kitagiri Sutta, and also when we studied the Pamada Vihari Sutta, they really help us to take care of this wound and the wound that still has traces of poison. And that poison can still be spread by desire, lust, and ill will and trigger underlying tendencies. So that's the thing that we need to consider. So the Buddha gives us another final two similes, and they're both on the same thing, actually. But, you know, he's so compassionate and so generous in giving similes. If we don't understand it this way, think about it this way. So this seventh simile is, suppose, Sunakata, there were a bronze cup of beverage possessing a good color, smell, and taste, but it was mixed with poison, and a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain. What do you think, Sunakata? Would that man drink the cup of beverage knowing if I drink this, I would incur death or deadly suffering? No, venerable sir, so too. That bhikkhu is one who practices restraint in the six bases of contact. And then that same paragraph, having understood that acquisition is the root of suffering, being acquisitionless, liberated in the destruction of acquisitions, it is not possible that he would direct his body or arouse his mind towards any object or attachment. And then the eighth and final simile that the Buddha gives is, suppose, Sunakata, there were a deadly poisonous snake and a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure and recalled from pain. What do you think, Sunakata? Would that man give that deadly poisonous snake his hand or his thumb, knowing if I'm bitten by him, I would incur death or deadly suffering? 
no venerable sir, so too when a bhikkhu practices restraint in the six bases of contact, and having understood that attachment is the root of suffering, is without attachment, liberated by the destruction of attachment, it is not possible that he would direct his body or arouse his mind towards any object of attachment. So just one thing to say about those last paragraphs in these two final similes, although it uses different words, so the previous one said acquisitions, and this one refers to attachment. When you look at the Pali, the Pali is exactly the same. So it's really about upadhi. So you can either call it acquisition or you can call it uh, attachment. And really for the sake of uh, consistency, this, this one should actually say acquisition as well. There's no difference. So don't be troubled by the, the word change. Same Dhamma, just a different simile offered by the Buddha to help us to understand the meaning and the phrasing. So this is uh, coming to the end of the discourse. And, the, and really, this is what the Buddha has said. Sunakata, son of the Lichavis, was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So the summary really is we've been given these wonderful eight different similes. And you can see they form a very powerful teaching from the Buddha. It's built on these similes in a gradual way. And it's particularly useful for people who've made progress and, and attained to the noble path, realized path and fruit. The strongest message from the Buddha for those who have attained is to dwell vigilantly. So Appamada Vihari is really what is needed and not to fall back into Pamada, to negligence. It's not good for us to think I'm safe now from lower realms, so I'll just relax or, or there's no danger in sensual pleasures or, or things that we've already gone through in, in this session. Nothing in what we've studied today or up to this point, how we've been practicing as a group supports that. So we shouldn't think like that. And instead, what we need to, to see is through these series of similes that the Buddha has generously given us, and particularly the simile about having surgery to remove the poisoned arrow and how to care for the wound. Because we are not arahants, then we certainly lack sense restraint. We can really do better. And when we have these traces of, of poison, we, we mustn't do unsuitable things. So we don't want the underlying tendencies, the nuseyas, to spread ignorance through desire, lust, and ill will. So when we think about mundane examples, it's very easy to come up with examples in daily life. Uh, so for example, we hear our neighbor is, is doing construction work and they're doing it all day and, and very late into the night, maybe into the night and into the next morning, two or 3 a.m. The drill is going, the grinding is going, they're laying tiles, all this kind of thing. And the desire for us, for the noise not to be there arises and we have the desire or the lust for, for quietness because we want to sleep. And ill will, when it's persistent like that and it's during sleepy time and well into the morning, we would have ill will potentially arise towards our neighbours. And if we think about the next day, we're meant to be hosting a Dhamma event and, and the noise is still there or we're worried that the noise is going to be troublesome, then it escalates. And so you can really get into a bit of a pickle in terms of unwholesome mind states leading to verbal misconduct with neighbors and all kinds of things. So when you look at, look at it like that, the Buddha says, apply mindfulness, apply wisdom, and 
if it's possible, then sense restraint as well to the situation. Now, that particular example is one that is very uh, present for me. So that's why I've given that example uh, that happened just uh, a day ago. And so in the night, what was happening was I was applying it. Let's not have ill will. Let's be okay. You're meant to be giving this talk in the morning, but it's okay. Don't worry. Just do the best you can. Don't have ill will to the neighbor. Maybe try and just stay up, listen to a Dhamma talk, meditate, but don't go there. And it was extremely difficult, extremely, extremely difficult. But the thing is that you have to apply it to what is happening in the world. So yes, we can go to higher concentrations and all of that. But the test is really when we come out, because that's where we need to try and bear with what it is. And if we develop, say, idipathas and things like that, it becomes easier to bear with the feeling. And, you know, sometimes you try and use that as well. And even metta with bojangas and all these different wonderful tools that the Buddha has given us. So it's only through wisdom and insight and mindfulness, right mindfulness and the right view that we're able to do these things. So there's many more examples like that that can happen at work. So we, we are not all able to just stay home and, and stay in higher concentrations until the end of this life. We actually have to come out and be in society, deal with things, whether it's at work, at home, in society, in community. And we get invitations to things, to gatherings, to social things, to Dhamma things. We get invited for trips. We need to go and attend to family members abroad. So there are real challenges that can arise from all these, these, these things. And of course, we have to attend to the practical things. Now, if we, have, if we think we have given up most of these things, then the other place to look is in the Dhamma examples. So what if someone comes and tells us something in relation to Dhamma? So someone comes and says, you understand the Dhamma the wrong way, or they come and criticize an aspect of the practice, or they come and give you feedback about a talk. And it's really how you respond to it like if someone says oh you do too much sutta study and not enough concentration and you know all kinds of different permutations of of feedback so you see what arises with that because when you see what arises then you see whether you fall for the bait you fall for the i'm right you're wrong and then get into verbal uh, misconduct arguing breeding defilements and, and wrong speech see whether we fall and when it comes to all of that, it gets very interesting. So we're not perfect as seekers and we need to really apply ourselves to these very real situations and to uh, bring it back to meditation and contemplate it, see how we could do better, see where we went wrong and usually it comes back to sense restraint. Now, when it comes to sense restraint, what we come to realize is that when we've reached a certain level of spiritual progress, a, le a level of, of attainment, we realize how precious sense restraint really is, that it is really a treasure, not something that we blindly practice. So in the beginning, we might have blindly practiced it because that's what we've been told. But when the, the, the Dhamma really connects and you really see how good it is, that you don't want to soak in through the sense bases, you don't want to pollute the mind, you don't want to trigger contact feeling, perceptions all of it constructing volitional formations that are sick all of it then it's a wonderful thing so you see that sense restraint is actually connected with happiness sukha 
So you just think, why do we enjoy noble silence on retreat? Why do we like sense restraint when we come for Dhamma sessions and we're trying to meditate? Why is it easier to be around Kalyanamittas who value sense restraint? So even though we might enjoy higher concentration and stay there for a while, sense restraint really helps us when we come out of that. And when we are around our Kalyanamitta as well, it's very supportive. It's very helpful to even maintain good friendships because we're not taking sign and features. We're not making judgments. We're not going down into defilements again and things of that nature. So not saying that we do, but the potential for it. One of the other things that also becomes quite clear is the link between sense restraint and wisdom. So an easy way to look at this is from Karaniya Metta Sutta. So we always emphasize the important step between Santindriyo to Nipakocha. So controlled or calm in the sense faculties that leads to being prudent or wise. So when we don't want to pollute the sense faculties, burn with the eye, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind, there is so much deep Dhamma that is behind that. You think about it, an Anjasapaya Sutta, when we really, really see in our meditation, sensual pleasures are impermanent, anicca, uh, hollow, tucca, false, deceptive, musa, mosa Dhamma. Um, when we contemplate Paticca Samupada, we really see that with these, this sensory process that leads to contact as a condition for feeling and the feeling as a condition for tanha, craving, all these upadis, these acquisitions, and then it leads to clinging, existence, birth, and then aging and death and the whole mass of suffering. Again, you see, ah, Santindriyo, Chanipakocha, very important. And then when we see that Chanda Samadhi is the one that leads to Nibbana because we have this, after seeing Dukkha, we really see the desire is not for the being the worm in the dung heap, but to actually get out of this whole mass of suffering, then the desire is really the desire for Nibbana, not to go down the unprofitable path that leads to Chanda Agati, going the wrong way and coming back again. So whatever insight we have about Bantindriyo, that is what leads to Nipaka, to wisdom, prudent. And with that wisdom comes more conviction towards Buddha, we, our sadda indriya gets strengthened with, with wisdom and we turn more to what he is teaching us. We heed it. We listen with eager ears. We heed the Dhamma Vinaya. We don't want to go through any of the unprofitable paths. We don't want to breed any more akusala and, and keep going through it. Even in this the re remainder of our life, we want to do our best to understand how we enter and stay in the higher concentrations and when we come out of it we want to be able to activate sense restraint and have our magapalachitta if we have it up um so all these things we develop as well with our meditations all the 37 bodhipakya dhammas when we develop keep sharpening our spiritual faculties our powers our bases of spiritual power when we develop the idipathas it makes it easier when we have the right striving, making all the, 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 the wholesome effort around akusala and akusala. Yeah, akusala and kusala. And when we have the four establishments of mindfulness, the satipatthana, and when we activate through our meditation, the bojangas, the enlightenment factors. And of course, we are developing the noble eightfold path as the way out of suffering. 
So there is so much that is wonderful in this sutta. This is, I, I say this probably every session, but right now this is my favorite sutta. So take encouragement and inspiration from this teaching from the Buddha and spend some time going through these similes in your own time, connected back to how we practice our, our meditations. There's probably more we could say building on this sutta, but we can leave it here probably in terms of the talk. And at another time, if we want to, we can we can even uh, look at these, these similes again if it's helpful. So if 